one of the proofs of the effectiveness of a spiritual path is that it can uh, create saints. That, that the, the proof of it is that if you follow the teachings as they're given and attune to the guru or the teacher as he proposes, that you will become infinitely great. And in our a particular lineage um, from Yogananda, you know, the generations are just beginning to fulfill themselves, so it's not as if um, there have been time, you know, for many, many great devotees to accumulate. Um, Kriyananda tells us that at one of the Christmas meditations that he attended when Yogananda was still alive, and Kriyananda could have only gone to I guess four, probably. He was there for three and a half years. He came in September, and Yogananda died in March. So it was probably four. It may have been the last one. I don't know. But Swami remarks that Master you know, looked out on the room and said there would be a number of siddhas, fully liberated souls, and quite a few jivan muktas in the room of people that he was looking at. And you know, through the years, that uh, promise because Swami was in the room, you know, has been a powerful force, uh, an incentive for Swamiji himself um, to, to be one of those that Master saw. And of course, in Swami's life, he had the promise from Master that in fact he would be one. Uh, but Sister Ganamata, also, when she died, Master spoke of her as be, being fully free, having merged into the infinite, having... Um, reach the final goal of all incarnations. We, we have to keep two perspectives in mind just in order to enjoy the divine drama as it's played. Um, now we look at these things from the safe distance of time and from the comfortable confirmation of the published book. Um, and so when Master stood at the eulogy that he gave for Sister Gyanamata, which you all must have read or were supposed to have read in the beginning of the book here, and, and spoke of him seeing her merging into the infinite, of her being gone forever, of her having no more karma ever to, to work out. And even in this lifetime, that even the, the suffering and all that she experienced was not even her karma. And that when Master looked into her eyes, he, he never saw any... Um, bad thought or sin or limitation of any kind, when Master was announcing all of that, it wasn't as if those were facts that everybody in the class had already read in the book. You know, it was the Master himself. Um, why don't you come on in? Um, it was the Master himself putting the confirmation on a reality that wouldn't necessarily have been known to everyone unless they were highly intuitive. Swami Kriyananda himself tells us a story of his meeting with Sister Gyanamata in his own autobiography, The Path. And uh, briefly, you all remember that he was an exceedingly eager young man of 22 who'd gotten on the bus in New York and come straight to California and gone right to Encinitas and knocked on the door, profoundly hoping that Yogananda himself expecting him by his intuitive powers would be there to open his arms and welcome him. And instead, he was met by this gray-haired little old lady, as far as he could see. 
who at first, as you recall from the story, mistook him for some kind of a service uh, man, somebody who'd come to help with the utilities. And so <laughs> the first words that were essentially spoken to, yoga, uh, to Kriyananda when he arrived was, were by Gyanamata. And she said, oh, you've come about the water. Because she was in charge of the ashram there, and obviously they were having some trouble with the water, and that's who she thought he was. And then he said, no, I've come to dedicate my life to Paramahansa Yogananda. I've come to live here and, and be part of this. And she just sort of you know, pulled back a little bit and said, oh, have you? You know, did you think to write or to call or to make arrangements? You know, did you think you could just show up? She didn't say those words, but she just said, oh, like this. And then she explained to him that usually you had to wait a number of years. And, and, and so when Swami tells the whole story, he felt enormously thwarted by this person. And uh, he also felt, you know, who was she to be telling him? He just showed up and he had all these uh, very cocky reactions. Um, and he, she sent him uh, away to go to Hollywood, where Yogananda actually was. Kriyananda had arrived at Encinitas, just as Swami himself said, when he read Autobiography of a Yogi, he was so excited reading the book. And it was also the first edition of the book, which makes less of a point about the organization of self-realization, fellowship, and all of that, and more just, there's just many fewer references to it. But also because Kriyananda himself, as he said, was so anti-institutional, he, he blocked out any awareness that Master had started any kind of organization and just had him pictured in his mind as just this sort of solitary guru. So he didn't know that there were different churches. He didn't know there were different places. He didn't know there were lessons. He didn't know any of that. He could have known it, but he didn't know any of it. So when Sister Gyanamata, you know, started putting on him the system and the um, the, she was the senior person, and Yogananda was somewhere else. There was all this rebellion on Kriyananda's part. And, and then he got on the bus to go from San Diego to Hollywood. And as he was on the bus, he was fuming. This is how he described it. How dare she tell me? Who is she? And he started thinking about little old ladies who are just so <laughs> narrow and just, as he put it, squeeze the life out of all churches and just, you know, on like this. And then he said, all of a sudden... This awareness of the look in her eyes came into his consciousness. And, and, and he was sensitive and spiritually sensitive enough that even in that exchange about the water and the lessons and where was Yogananda, because Gyanamata's entire consciousness was so full of God that it had transferred to Kriyananda, and he was sensitive enough to feel it. And right in the middle of all this egoic rebellion, something in Kriyananda's soul was lifted, and he realized that he was not dealing with any ordinary old lady. And in, he said, and, and inwardly, he apologized to her. And I, I asked him about this story just this last couple of weeks when we were together because of knowing this. He said, inwardly, he apologized. In other words, he had the humility to recognize that he was wrong and that, and that she was something much more than he was and had an absolute right to be doing what she was doing. And inwardly he apologized to her. And he said, as he wrote in his book, in that moment he knew that he'd been accepted, even though he had to then go to Master and ask and so on. But that was, the, that was a test that he'd been given, which is to have a real saint come in front of him and thwart his desires and see 
if he had the perceptivity and the humility to, to be a disciple. And as soon as he demonstrated that he did, he knew in, in his heart that, that he, he would be allowed to enter that ashram. Well, I asked Swami, just because, of course, I had the opportunity. I said, did you ever, you know, did you have any opportunity to be with Sister Gyanamata? He said in the three and a half years he was there, he saw her twice. That was the first time. <laughs> and on another occasion, she was standing at the top of the stairs, once when Master was going out and he, he caught sight of her. Now, it, it, of course, we have to realize that the last three and a half years of Master's life were also the last three years of Sister Gyanamanta's life. And as her biography tells us, um, she, was, she was extraordinarily ill for the last, well, for a great deal of her life from before she came to Master, but for the last 20 years especially, and just increasingly debilitated. Plus, at that time in the ashram, there was a very strict separation between the men and women, and the men just didn't see the women very much at all. And she was just a hidden force. So, uh, and he was at Mount Washington and she was more at Encinitas. Um, but nonetheless, um, the role she played in his life from the very beginning, you can see, was profound. But not necessarily did they have um, that much karma to experience in this life. But it was um, also the story that Kriyananda tells about her was when Master spoke of her being finally liberated. And in his mind, Kriyananda thought, but I thought you had to liberate others. In other words, you had to be a guru to others before you could be liberated yourself. And Swamiji said he just thought that. And Master heard his thought and turned to him and said, oh, she had disciples, just like that. Which is also just interesting in the context of what we're about to do here, which is that, of course, there have to be souls who have the capacity to liberate others because it's part of the condition of becoming liberated yourself. If this path can free you, it makes of you a self-realized master. And such a one then turns and frees others. So the, um, the quality of energy and advice and attention that you feel in the way that Sister Gyanamata relates through what she's written in this book, um, she does it humbly because it is the nature of a great soul to do it humbly, only as an instrument and as a help to master. But her commitment to it was also God-inspired, because she would be the one who would be the channel, um, leading souls through her back to master and onto the infinite. And so that's important for us also to understand, um, perhaps, she will turn out to be a more important link for some of us than you may, people may be aware of even at this time. But her consciousness is another expression of Yogananda's consciousness. And it, it, it's early in the development of this path of self-realization. So we don't have all the structures around to tell us to pray to which saints when we lose certain things, you know. Uh, I just speaking of that, I actually left my copy of this book on the airplane last Thursday when I was coming back from Europe, right? Didn't discover it until I had jet lag and was up at three in the morning and thought it'd be a great opportunity to study, you know, and all of a sudden I'm ransacking the house. 
because I left it on the plane. So somebody told me to pray to St. Anthony. Is that who you pray to when things are absolutely lost? You know what I thought to myself? After hundreds of years, they really get it worked out. But we're still very new. Now, the fantastically marvelous advantage of that is that what we learn, we learn because we really learn it from inside our souls. You know? We already have Master telling us that she was fully liberated and that she's a great saint and that she left her spiritual footprints and so on. But we don't have a whole institution telling us how we're going to relate to that. We just have the individual opportunity, not quite as dynamic as Swamiji's opening the door and having her stare at him, but not dissimilar to that. Because although I'm sure many of you have read this book before today, um, nonetheless, it's still all very new to us. We haven't really plumbed the depths of it. We don't have a whole shelf of commentary on Sister Gyanamata's letters which undoubtedly in generations to come there will be. So it's very fresh and very real, and we need to enter into it in that spirit. Because she, um, when I was rereading this book, which of course I first started reading, I first started reading this book before it was published. Um, For many years, the letters of Sister Gyanamata were published through the SRF magazines. Master makes reference to that in his eulogy of her. And so in the early, early years of Ananda, people got access to those old magazines and gathered her letters together and Xeroxed them. And we had these, you know, these dog-eared Xeroxed copies of the letters of Sister Gyanamata. And it was only relatively recently even that they were collected out in this form for us to work with. But... um, what we have in her book is so uh, remarkable because it's, it's so much of it is, is direct words to devotees not dissimilar to us about how to deal with the very realities that we're dealing with. Of course, it all took place much more in the context of Master's actual physical body and the particular confusions and dilemmas and opportunities that were created by that. But much more profoundly, what she is all about is the guru-disciple relationship. And in fact, in the you know, introductory materials, when they're talking about her, they also set the context, which is also wonderful to remember, which is, even in Yogananda's lifetime, people didn't automatically know that even he was a master what to speak as they, as they write in the introductory material, even having any idea what that meant. Even disciples who were very close to him, we, we were not, you know, Americans were not raised in this tradition. In the Indian tradition, there's a whole understanding of what a self-realized master is and how disciples relate to their gurus and just all sorts of things. I mean, Yogananda would often somewhat ruefully remark about how woefully ignorant Americans were just in, in, not in, in the simplest protocol of how to relate to someone such as him. Not that he objected, he merely observed uh, what the experience was like. But Sister Gyanamata stood apart in the sense that she in, intuitively, from the very beginning, because of her own spiritual greatness, was able to comprehend who Yogananda was and what was appropriate in response to him. You know, somewhere in this book, I'm not quite sure exactly where, she's asked the question as to why are you always silent in the presence of the Master? And it was her habit 
whenever Yogananda would enter the room where she was, that she would stand, she would remain standing, and she would not speak. And, and it wasn't, as she herself described it in answer to that, it was not an affectation, it wasn't a gesture, it wasn't an idea that this is what I ought to do. She said it was simply the spontaneous reaction of her soul, which was when he was present, it became impossible for her to do anything except hold herself perfectly still and silent to receive what he had to give her. And, and even more, it, it, it's written again and again, and you have to really, um, one has to really tune in and appreciate this. She almost never saw it. From the first time she met him to the next time she saw him was five years. And even at the time when she was living at Mount Washington, she almost never saw him. And in fact, she would make it a policy to absent herself. When he would come to where she was, she would leave because she was so determined to have the relationship be on the highest possible level. She didn't want to risk um, bringing it down to the level of where, as she put it, he would feel that he needed to talk to her. She wanted to be only attuned on the level of consciousness. Now, we're dealing with an individual of uncommon strength and understanding. You know, we have to just say that. But, but it's helpful to realize of such stuff are saints made. But we also have to realize that, they, that she was universally described as, as, as infinitely kind and loving and patient and full of motherly concern and and in the, in the introductory description, they say they never knew her even to say an unkind word. And they tell the little story about the teenagers who were interested in hairdos and how she went to the trouble to get them a magazine that had pictures of hairdos. So we have to also not be intimidated by her stature and not imagine that that very stature also implies compassion for us and a complete understanding of how to help us move step by step forward. Now, having said that, there are other characteristics about her book that are, are perfectly exemplified by the title, God Alone, which is, of course, her own personal motto, which is when, I've said this to some of you last night, and I've repeated here at greater length. Over the years of being on the spiritual path, you know, um, we used to joke a lot about this in the early years of Ananda, after some of us had been there six or seven or eight years, and m most of us, the group that I related to most of the time, um, were living a, 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 a more traditional monastic lifestyle. We were a group of nuns. There was a group of monks. We, we imagined ourselves in that role lifelong. But we, we found, you know, we'd come in our early 20s, and we'd just kind of thrown ourselves into it, with intuitive understanding and enthusiasm of what we were doing, it had been an intuitive leap from the inspiration of it to the commitment. And then over many years, you build the logical bridge of what you've gotten yourself into and what it actually means. And I remember that we used to, um, jokingly, but, but, but joking on point, sort of say, if we'd had any idea what we were really getting ourselves into, we might not have done it. And not that we wouldn't have really done it, but God tricks you. You know, he draws you in, gets you committed, 
gets your life going, and then gradually reveals to you what this really means. You know, what self-realization really means, what it means to, to overcome the ego, what it means to become a real renunciate. And by that point, you're hooked. You know, you can't get out. We used to joke, you say, we said we've, we've swum too far from shore to go back. The distant horizon is still quite far away. We're treading water, thinking about it, and getting tired, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so you just, you, you can't turn back, and you have to go forward um, towards your goal. But um, especially nowadays, when um, there are so many, many different kinds of movements about personal growth, and uh, such a, a sophisticated and intricate system of psychological help and instruction and guidance, and so many different interpretations of what the spiritual path means, and so many things that are called the spiritual path, but are not really genuine paths to self-realization. There's a lot of different ideas about sort of how much is enough and what's really needed. And even more than that, we have a lot of different ideas about how to solve the dilemmas and the problems of our life as they arise. And there's this enormous process that takes place anyway that um, as people progress on the spiritual path, we always discover this. In order to become a disciple, in order to get to the point where you want to be a devotee of God, in order to reach the point where you have the good karma to attract yourself a true guru and the, the and true practices and true teachings, one has to develop self-will, independence, um, the, the power and the integrated force of the ego. You, you spend a lot of incarnations just getting that whole system strong enough together that you have the creativity, the independence, and the courage um, to break away from the mass hypnosis of what worldly life is and actually seek self-realization. But then that very tool that got you to that point um, has to be put down. And a whole new set of understandings based on discipleship and based on true self-transcendence have to be integrated into your life. And very often over the years of Ananda, there's, there has been this push-pull conflict between what we it lump as a group and call the psychological approach versus the principles of self-realization. And it's not as if you can draw a clear line down the middle, this is psychology, this is self-realization, this is bad, this is good. But there's a sort of orientation towards psychology or an orientation towards spirituality that often confuse and create conflict in people's lives. And sometimes when Swami Kriyananda, as he is inclined to do, will often make very broad sweeping statements and sort of gather up a whole profession like psychologists and just toss them over the edge. Sometimes that provokes a teeny-weeny reaction in people who are, are the eyes are psychologists or have been benefited by psychology, you know, all these different things. So from time to time we have these little mini explosions and we sort of like work our way through this. Um, but, but nonetheless, the longer one is on the spiritual path, the more one begins to appreciate that there's a huge amount of difference between doing everything you can to make yourself feel good 
and what's really required to become self-realized. I'm, I'm thinking in this context of when uh, a friend of mine was in the hospital having a baby, the, her first child, and so she'd never been through this process before. I've never been pregnant, so I've never been through it either, but I was, I was there as her one of the people who was helping support her in this very um, informal hospital setting where she was allowed to have her friends in with her while she was having the baby. And of course she had prepared herself and her husband, you know, all the things that, you, that people do these days when they want a natural positive experience. And she had been to all the classes and learned all the different things about all the ways that you can make the labor less difficult. And, and she was doing all those things, you know, most mothers say at a certain point, none of it works. But anyway, so she was trying very hard to balance the pain, mitigate the pain, find a comfortable position, and so on and so on. And the labor was not really progressing. And finally, a very experienced um, nurse came in and looked at her and said, Honey, stop trying to make yourself comfortable. <laughs> she said, you need to get really, really uncomfortable. That's what's going to have to happen before you're ever going to be comfortable again. <laughs> and she was a smart lady, and she got it, and she accepted getting really uncomfortable and just moved it right through and delivered the baby pretty fast. But I've often thought about that, especially when I was reading this book, that there's, there's still this thought, and it's a very subtle one, because understand, whereas in the past, pain and suffering was the coin of man's redemption, for us now, that payment has been exchanged for calm acceptance and joy. So it isn't as if the more we suffer, the more spiritual we are, or that we must suffer in order to be spiritual, although, of course, there's a later chapter in this book, Suffering is a Path to Spiritual Understanding. But nonetheless, Joy is really the answer. Joy is really the path. Joy is really the method. At the same time, as Swami says so simply, as Master said so simply, the spiritual path is too narrow for the ego and God both to walk side by side. One or the other has to give way. And I feel in Sister Gyanamata's book, by, and, and in her life, and by her just crystal clear understanding that, that one of the things I think we're going to learn together over these six weeks is to really understand the difference between how, when we feel pain, we solve it in a way that takes us towards self-realization or we solve it in a way that just allows us to feel a little better and reincarnate again. You know? And it's not that it's a bad thing to do that. It's just a simple question of where are we really going and how are we really going to get there? And I, and I sincerely hope that through the process of this class that the sheer overwhelming challenge of what Sister Gyanamata says so sweetly, um, that, that we really face into that and, and discuss it and dispute it if necessary and work with it until at least a phrase here and a phrase there we're really willing to embrace it. Because that's a, that's a tremendous gift that she has to give us. And she's this marvelous combination of just ruthlessness. She's just, a, she's just ruthless in the way she speaks. But, but with such underlying kindness, you know, that you don't even really notice at first what she's actually said to you. So, so it's, a, it's a, 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 
an ideal expression. It's a, it occurs to me now, the most obvious thing in the world, it's a female expression. You know, how many times in the context of Ananda have, have we, again and again, generation after generation of devotees, have to face into the issue that they're all men up there and go through long, and many of you have heard me go through long, complicated, tortured, sometimes I became very agitated sort of discussions about the whole male-female thing. And truthfully, it doesn't make any difference. And Gyanamata was no more female than Yogananda was male. By the time you reach that level, you're not defined by the body you're living in. Nonetheless, she was a soul who was going to be liberated who came into a female form. And in all probability, probably has been female for a long time. Um, Many people um, said, many people believe that Sister Gyanamata was St. Teresa of Avila in previous lives. And Swami Kriyananda just recently mentioned that even though he doesn't know, he says it fits. And for those of you who have ever read anything about Teresa of Avila, it really does fit. And the other thing about it that's so um, balancing is the fact that Teresa of Avila did so much external work. You know, she just... um, her life was, was just nothing but traveling around and finding these convents, founding these convents, and, you know, until the very, very last. Um, she died traveling in the winter trying to found another convent because that's what Jesus told her to do. And Sister Ganamata really had almost nothing to do. Her, her, she was finished with everything like that. Kriyananda tells the story of when he was put in charge by Master of the magazine, the SRF magazine, and he, he needed to solicit articles. He thought, well, self-evidently, I should get articles from the wisest people around. So he tried to get Rajasi and Sister Gyanamata to write articles for the magazine. And um, Master sort of laughed at Swami's efforts and, and, and scolded is too strong a word, but just essentially said to him that they don't, they don't need to do anything like that anymore. You know, they're not going to write articles for the magazine. It's, they have that kind of karma. The, the capacity they have to give ha, had, had reached essentially the formless stage. You know? So even when Sister Gyanamata came to the ashram, yes, Yogananda put her in charge of Encinitas, and she does talk about, um, she, she did some counseling, she answered letters and so on like that. But really what they say is she cooked, and she was a housekeeper, and she sort of managed the, the retreat a little bit. She was very humble, she was very in the background, and she almost never spoke. You know? So you think, oh, here's this, and Rajasi was just the same. Swamiji says about Rajasi, he, he uses this phrase repeatedly. He said, Rajasi had no small talk, was the words that he used. He said, none. Now, you think of a person who doesn't talk much, Rajasi just didn't talk. You know, if there was nothing that had to be said, he said nothing. Swamiji said once that Swami got to drive Rajasi somewhere, and they, he had to drive him for some quite some period of time. They never spoke, because Rajasi just didn't have anything to say <laughs> that needed to be said. And yet, when, you, when Rajasi was meditating on the bluff, and Master was walking by, with, one of, with, with some visitors, he said, you know, be silent, let's not disturb him. And then he said, you have no idea what blessings are drawn to this work just because one person meditates this deeply. 
And so Sister Gyanamata's life was the same kind of life. And again, this is where, it, in the Bhagavad Gita, it has that very simple statement, what is day to the worldly person is night to the devotee. What is night to the devotee is day to the worldly person. And it has many levels of interpretation, not the least of which is devotees meditate at night while everybody else is sleeping. But, you know, you start there. But really what it's saying is as you really get onto the spiritual path, everything flips over. And that's the um, uh, understanding that Sister Gyanamata is always trying to put out to us through this book, is that we just have to train ourselves to think completely differently, just like my friend when she was having her baby. Stop trying to get comfortable. Stop thinking in terms of how you're going to get your little ego system all worked out and get what it wants. You know, it just doesn't matter. It's not where it's happening. So Sister was, um, her contribution externally was uh, very invisible to many people. You had to be sensitive or be there long enough to realize what you were dealing with. But those who were um, gradually appreciated it. But also, there were so many remarkable characteristics about her life, which are really worth realizing, which is that, you know, she... Um, didn't meet Yogananda until she was 56 years old, you know? And so all of us who may think, well, it's, we're not, you know, we haven't made much progress and we're not really going to make much progress, you have to realize that she didn't even start as a disciple until she was already even older than I am at this point. You know? Now, of course, she also tells the story, and this is, again, the balance between spirituality and, and psychology. She, she tells the story of how, I mean, the biography of her tells the story, and she tells a little herself, that her, her father died when she was four. Her, her, her mother, after a while, remarried someone her family didn't approve of. They were very poor. There was a lot of stress and suffering. Her mother chose to, to use her as her confidant. So from a very young age, Sister Gyanamata said, she got the picture that life was really not as cheery as you might think. And she was just very conscious of the limitations and the suffering, and her, own, and her own life was difficult. And from a psychological point of view, you could very easily start from there and build a whole structure of all the reasons why suffering is justified, why limitation is justified, and these are the things that everybody does. I had this same thought when this woman, Alicia... Uh, Appleman German came here um, uh, last year, last spring. She is a, what, what people call Holocaust survivor. And she was nine years old in Poland when the Nazis came in, part of a Jewish family. So from nine to 17, her life was a living hell, in which eventually every single member of her family, which was dozens of people, was killed. She was the sole surviving person, including after the war was over, and she'd managed to save her mother, having her mother killed right in front of her eyes. In fact, her mother was killed by taking the bullet that was aimed at Alicia. Okay? Now, you meet Alicia now. She's whatever age she is now, 70 maybe. She's just a radiant, loving, kind, extraordinary person. You know, someone that you would just want to emulate if you possibly could. And, and her childhood was just about as bad as it gets, right? And I, I just sort of had this realization after I had gotten to know her, which I saw her several times last spring. I thought, 
it's not what happens to you in life. It's what you make of it, which is one of Sister Gyanamata's mottos. Now, she talks about the difficulties of her childhood entirely from the point of view of the fact that, therefore, from a very young age, she was inspired to look beyond this world. You see what a simple shift that is? And this is the, this is the beginning. I mean, just in the beginning of her, of her own biography is the beginning of the definition of what it means to be a devotee, as opposed to what it means to be a worldly person, a person who has a spiritual life, but who's really still trying to live like everybody else lives in this world. I mean, everybody in this world thinks that the goal here is to be comfortable and to be happy. It's just so deeply ingrained within us. That's just what we think we're here for. We think it's meant to work out. And there's always this little bit of resentment when it doesn't. I had just, you know, just a classically stupid experience this way on this last trip. I had, I was telling people yesterday, I had packed for the first time somewhat economically. Usually I just put my whole closet into the suitcase and just take it. I find it easier, I find it easier to ask David to carry it (laughs) than to decide what I need. But this time I had it all worked out. And five days, the, the, you know, in the first five days of the trip, I sat in some bleach and ruined an essential piece of my little system. You know? So much energy had gone into my little system. And then there I was, and I didn't have it. Like this. <laughs> and I was astonished by the effect it had on my mind. I was, I think the actual word is appalled. By the you know, the amount of time I spent thinking about it and reasoning about it and trying to make it different and pulling the bloody thing out of the closet and looking at it again, you know, and just trying to make it work. It's just, I mean, and I, I mean, on one level, I was also able to say, you know, people have friends die and you get cancer and things like this, and all I did was sit in some caustic chemical. But it becomes sim- symbolic on how many levels when something hits us that is designed to purge us of our ego attachments, we tend to try to find a way to ward it off rather than to find a way to allow it to come in even deeper. So Sister Gyanamata's, in Sister Gyanamata's life, we, you, know, you hear all these different little pieces of it, and that they, they all tell the story of the, the life that they were all living at, at Encinitas in the early years in you, it, it's so wonderful to really spend time to think about this because now, now SRF has become so formal and they've made their history so orderly that it's a little hard to really get this picture. But Master went to India in 1936. He came back and Rajasi had built this hermitage for him in Encinitas. And it, it became Master's home. Master was um, enormously generous and loving and expansive and active and spontaneous. And, um, and so they talked about that all of Master's friends from all around the world would come and stay there and stay for long periods of time. You, just, you would just picture that. It's not a kind of everybody signs up in advance and this weekend is for women and this weekend is for men. You know, we come and we have these silent retreats. It was the home of a very loving, expansive individual who was helping people everywhere. You just... It's so easy for me, so much easier for, to understand what Master was like whenever you spend even a little time with Swamiji. We were just in uh, Sicily with him, and 
it's, it, it's, a, it's a constant process for him, as I, I know it was for Master even more, of just looking for those who are receptive. You know, the, the, the job of such a one is to put out the divine vibrations to anyone who will take it. And, and all they do is just live looking for who will receive these vibrations. And when people will, they'll just do everything they can to try to draw them in. So Master ran this home, and people would just come, and people would show up in the middle of the night. People would stay for weeks, and there was no place for them to stay. So as Diamata writes in the introduction, you know, we young ones would just give up our rooms. We had our little rooms. We would give them up. We'd just sleep on the floor, on sleeping bags, in the living room. So because the guest is God, these are Master's friends or devotees or who knows what the situation was, they would just give up their rooms. 